Welcome to Dialogue Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Sebastian, and this is the show where I kill the small talk with the leading voices in crime, culture, and justice. We are concluding our series on wrongful convictions today with Gilbert King, the host of my favorite podcast this year, Bone Valley. Gilbert is also the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Devil in the Grove. He's written two other New York Times bestselling books, and his work covers race, crime, and justice in America. Now, if you've already listened to Bone Valley, then you're going to love hearing some of the -the behind-the-scenes discussion today about the making of the show and how the story came to be. And if you haven't yet listened, then you're also going to love it because Gilbert's passion and conviction for this practically unbelievable story is palpable, and it was just such a treat to talk to him. I'm going to play the trailer for Bone Valley before getting right into the interview, but here's a quick recap for anyone who doesn't know the story. In 1987, 18-year-old Michelle Schofield was found dead in a phosphate pit in Florida. Two years later, her husband Leo was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Fifteen years later, previously unidentified fingerprints matched Jeremy Scott, a violent teenager who lived nearby. Jeremy has since confessed to Michelle's murder, yet Leo Schofield remains behind bars. With that, let's hear the trailer for Bone Valley, and I want to thank Gilbert King for killing the small talk. Hey, listen, this is the story. It is what it is. You believe or don't believe it. It's up to you. It will not change the fact that I'm an innocent man. Do you hear my madness? In February 1987, Leo Schofield's 18-year-old wife, Michelle, went missing. Laughter hides my fears. I guess uh, I need to talk to somebody about uh, finding my wife. I'm really worried about her. I'd like to find out something. Three days later, Michelle was found stabbed to death off a freeway in Lakeland, Florida. Shouldn't it be your responsibility to investigate? Now, wait a minute. We have investigated this thing upside down. No physical evidence connected Leo Schofield to the crime. And he said, I'm going to put you in the electric chair. And I said, that's what you're going to have to do. But I'm not going to say something that's not true. At 22 years old, Leo was convicted for his wife's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Leo Schofield is a cold-blooded murderer, and if I have my way, he'll never get out of prison. But after Leo's conviction, there were still so many unanswered questions. Always, always, the fingerprints was a big question in my mind. Obviously, somebody was in the car. Someone knew something. Who was it? What did they know? So I took the fingerprint, and I'm like, all right, who does it come back to? And he said, a guy named Jeremy Scott. Jeremy Scott? Who the fuck's Jeremy Scott? Grandma. Huh? Has anybody come talk to you? About what? Murder. Murder? A murder. Despite new evidence pointing to Jeremy Scott, Leo Schofield is still in prison. He's been locked up for the last 34 years. You or somebody like you is Leo's last shot. I would just really like to know who did it. I want you guys to find the truth. You know what I mean? And I can leave this world knowing that at least it was solved. I'm Gilbert King, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and I've spent the last four years investigating this case with researcher Kelsey Decker. Together, we set out to uncover the truth behind the conviction of Leo Schofield. 
But we would soon learn that Michelle Schofield's murder was just the tip of the iceberg as our investigation pulled us down into the much darker world of Jeremy Scott. Don't judge me till you hear the whole story. Sorrow's depths are endless in this valley of tears. From Lava for Good Podcasts, this is Bone Valley. Find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Gilbert King, welcome to Dialogue Podcast. Really nice to meet you and have you on the show. Oh, it's really nice to be here, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Of course, and thanks for joining us from Spain. Very cool international interview happening. (laughs) Exactly. I'm just so happy we're talking because Bone Valley has absolutely become my favorite podcast I've listened to this year. And it's quickly becoming, I'm like too nervous to even say my favorite of all time, but it's going to be in my top three, like no doubt. I don't even know what to say to that, Rebecca. It's just so (laughs) shocking. I listen to them all. And I'm not saying I'm the arbiter of what's good or not. I'm just saying that this one has stuck with me in the way that it's gone beyond telling people or asking people to listen. It's like imploring them. And and no one has been mad about it. We on Dialogue are in a conversation, a series on wrongful conviction. So I'm thrilled to have you add to it. Your work has a theme. You were an author before this podcast race, justice, the American criminal justice system. Why did you start writing and thinking so deeply about that? Well, you know, it's one of those things that when it sort of sticks with you, you know, like sometimes you're working on a history, you're dealing with documents, people have passed away, and this just feels like history. In this particular case, it felt like I was doing the same kind of themes, wrongful conviction, except it felt more urgent because someone was sitting in a prison every single day who I felt didn't believe belong there. And so there's a sense of urgency when you're working on something like, I have to tell this story right. I have to get it right because this may be his last chance. And and so you feel some kind of urgency, especially once you, you know, finally understand like, oh, this guy was wrongfully convicted. There's someone else who did this crime. Uh, then it just feels like, boy, why are you working on some history thing when you could be working on something that's, you know, impacting someone's life and someone's family's lives right now? The urgency of Leo Schofield's story and, you know, for my listeners who haven't yet listened to Bone Valley, and I've already asked them to, I think a lot of people will have. It's a must listen and it's happening as we speak. And it's such a glaring example of how slowly justice moves, even when it's 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 just so clearly could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the man they have for a crime didn't do it. How maddening is it right now for for Leo with all the buzz and um, energy this this show has brought to the story to still be sitting there every day? Like, how are you dealing with that, Kelsey and and Leo? One of the things I'm constantly thinking about is, you know, I, I write back and forth with Leo through an email system and we he calls me all the time. And so we have these conversations and just sort of see the ebbs and flows of his emotions. Like, all right, now all the episodes are out. What's happening? And, you know, he doesn't hear anything because there was a hurricane down there and he's kind of locked away and like the rest of the inmates aren't listening. They, they can't listen. Right. So he just doesn't know what's going on. It's like, I just poured my soul out in this oh. podcast that's come out 
And I don't know what the reaction is. So it's been really these ebbs and flows. I can tell you that since the hurricane has sort of dissipated, they're back to regular visitation. One of the things that's really inspiring to him is how many people from the outside world, like the guards, the administrators, the outside contractors who come in and do work with him, they've come up to him and said, you know, because they don't talk about a, a prisoner's case. They don't sure. talk about that at all in prison. And so they've come up to him and said, you know, Leo, I, I, this is, I'm paraphrasing him, but this is pretty much what he said. You know, Leo, I always thought that you were someone who didn't really belong in this place, but I didn't know the details, but I've listened to your story and now I know you're innocent and I just want to hug you and tell you how sorry I am that you've been here so long. <laughs> and, and that to me is just, you know, for him, it's, it's extraordinarily emotional, but for me to just hear that and to just hear like, that's the reaction, the real world reaction, it's, 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 it's really something I have to tell you. It's, it's a really, uh, it's, you know, it's a burden and a gift to carry in a lot of ways. That's a great way to put it. It's so bittersweet. So this whole story starts with you getting a tip from a judge, which is a pretty credible and, you know, compelling way to start looking into someone's innocence. But was there a defining moment for you at any point in the investigation where you knew without a doubt was it one piece of evidence or one conversation with a person that you just said, there is no more doubt, like I'm 100% sure he's innocent. And, and what was it? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the exact moment. I can sort of remember certain moments. Like, well, honestly, when a judge comes to you and says, this guy is innocent, it sets off alarm bells. You listen. And, and yeah. Like, yeah. And like that night, I went to dinner with some public defenders and I was like, hey, what do you think of this? This judge came up to me and I showed him the card. He say, he's saying that this guy in Polk County was wrongfully convicted. He said he was framed. I know how they did it. I can tell you exactly how it happened. And these guys were passing around and I could just see their eyes kind of lit up like a judge wrote this. You know, they were very surprised. And then it finally got to a public defender in Polk County and he looked at it and he just kind of looked at me and goes, I know this case. You should call him. And I felt like he was telling me like, all right, this was a bad case too. And so, you know, but I'm a skeptical person. I asked Judge Cup a lot of questions. I started talking to his lawyers at the Innocence Project, getting all this information. And I think it was after I met Leo that that was the moment where I recognized because I, I had it in my head, like, if this guy tries to mislead me or, or just lie to me, I'm just, I'm not going to get involved in this part. And he was never that way. He was always transparent. So another new avenue for you is podcasting. And there's a lot of shows like Bone Valley and the ones I've covered just in this series, you know, the system came out with Kim Kardashian. There's many others. I'm wondering how you feel about this alternative path to finding justice for people who are possibly wrongfully incarcerated. Yeah. And then this is all really new to me. And I, I, I honestly do not believe you can set out to do this and say like, I'm going to do the podcast. I'm going to tell the truth. And then he's going to be exonerated. You can't do that. I did that with Devil in the Grove and it, it took 10 years after it was published to sort of come to this moment. And, you know, I, granted, I think it's a little different when you have, you know, four young men who are wrongfully accused of this crime, but everybody's dead and posthumous. Now there's not this sense of urgency. I think people just, the book grew and it started to catch on politically and people said, I want to do something to correct this injustice. And, and really out of my hands as, as someone who, you know, as a, a storyteller, I can put it out there, but I can't really force anything. I can't make anything happen. It has to be, people have to come together and say, we need to fix this political people. It's just one of these things that's an organic movement. And I, I just don't think it's a realistic path towards correcting an injustice. However, I believe that, um, 
the criminal justice system has become so difficult to correct uh, wrongful convictions because of some of the laws that have been passed. Storytelling is one of the big things that does work in these cases, yeah. bringing to bring attention to these injustices. And I've been fortunate enough to have like politicians, lawmakers, judicial people reach out to me and say, you know, I'm going to try and do something with this. I'm going to try and talk to some of the people I know. And that's what it really takes. I mean, I really do feel like when I talk to Leo, I'm like, Leo, it's out there now. There's like not much more I can really do at this point. And, you know, the judicial system is spoken. So we just have to sort of hope for miracles. But I think that's the, the craziest part is that we wait right now. And it seems like his fate is resting in this circuit judge's hands right now. Yeah, it, it is resting in his hands, but there are also some other hands that have it. There's a clemency board that's made up of Governor DeSantis and his four cabinet members. That's another pathway. But it gets a little bit tricky because you have a governor who looks like he's running for president. So maybe he doesn't want to be the one who's exonerating convicted murderers at this time in his life. And so that's a little bit tricky. With Leo, it's like, there's no doubt. This is an innocent man who's been in prison. I right. mean, right. he's been there for 35 years. Guess it's just really hard to understand that, that it can be so clear to so many people and someone can still just day after day stay in prison. What do you think needs to happen in terms of humanity or the law so we can help people in the situation like Leo Schofield? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely this culture in a prosecutor's office. You know, the job of the prosecutor is to seek justice, not to win convictions. Right. And that's, that's spelled out very clearly. I mean, some, some of them have to take oaths to define that and to state that that's what their intentions are going to be. But it's not obviously not the case in reality. And, and some of the times you get to these places where, you know, like maybe all the evidence that I bring in that shows that Jeremy Scott is the killer, they can look at it and go, well, that's not admissible in court because we've already passed the, we're now in the appellate stage. We're not in the trial stage. That's not admissible. Okay. So then you're looking at all these things that can't come into the case. And, and to me, that's ridiculous. I mean, one yeah. of the great things about a conviction integrity review unit is they can start from scratch and just say, all right, forget the trial. Let's look at all the evidence. Let's go out and re-interview some of these witnesses if we think something was wrong there. Let's start from scratch. If there's a claim of innocence, let's look at that from scratch, okay? The, the whole case hinges on this one witness, Alice Scott, who claims she saw something from across the street. You know, when, when we look into that, you know, her very first statement to the police said that all this happened between 2.30 and 3 a.m. That's what her original report to the police was. Well, Leo is accounted for at 2.30 because he's with Michelle's father at 2.30. And at 3 o'clock, he's talking to deputies in a parking lot. That's all recorded. So it could not be that he's in two places at once. So what happens once this gets massaged by the state attorney? That starts getting moved back to now it's like closer to 1.30, all right? And everything gets moved around. So like when you look at the evidence, it just doesn't make any sense. And it all hinges on this one witness who really, I frankly think, has no credibility. Later on, she would say things, change her testimony. She couldn't stick to the same story. This is a, really the one person who put Leo Schofield in prison, this one witness. Just think if, if a conviction integrity review and it would come along, they would say, all right, well, she's obviously not credible. What other evidence is there? This case is thrown out very quickly. Right. And then you get to the part, that's, that's before even Jeremy Scott even gets involved in this, you know? It's maddening. It really, really is. And, and I'll, I'll never forget one of the things that he said to me much later on, and Leo says things to you sometimes that don't really register until you think about them later. Hmm. And in this particular case, he goes, 
you know, he's trying to say thank you for staying involved in my story and for telling the story. The podcast hadn't come out yet. And he said to me, Gilbert, there's nothing I can give you to thank you for everything you've done. But there is one thing I can give you. And I hope you understand the meaning of this. He goes, I will give you my word and promise you, you're never going to have to worry about this coming back on you and something going sideways on you. And it's that's going to change the way you feel about this case and about me. You will never have to worry about that because I've given you the truth. And it was just one of those things like, you know, you'd have to be Lawrence Olivier or the most psychopathic person in the world to deliver that kind of message. Exactly. You said you were a skeptic, and I think that serves the story well, too. One of the things he also said to us, you know, early on, you know, he's like, Gilbert, like, just think about, you know, like you're, tw- you're at age 21. But you've obviously gone on to, you know, do all these things. You've written books. You've had a family. You've done all these things. Um, But imagine if your life was just going back to like one really awful part of your, you know, adolescence as a 21-year-old person. And that's all anybody would ever talk about to you. That has defined your life. And I just remember thinking, yeah, there's things at 21. Like, I wouldn't want that to be my defining moment in life. But the truth is, it's not his defining. Like he, he is a person in prison who's a role model, a leader. He's respected by everybody. He's, you know, think about it this way. And, and this is a thing I've had to learn to think about it. If you believe that he's innocent, he's been in prison for 35 years for killing his wife. And, and let's just, let's just assume that he is innocent to survive that and to carry the spirit to go forward and, and to help people in the prison. It's a remarkable human being you're looking at. And that's Truly. just if you assume he's innocent. And so, like, obviously, I do believe he's innocent. So he is a remarkable person. And that's how I choose to look at him. When he talks to me on the phone and writes letters to me about his feelings and thoughts, like, I recognize I'm talking to a remarkable person. Truly. He truly is. And for anybody who listens to Bone Valley and also feels he's innocent, there is a petition. I don't know if it's ended. Oh, it's still out there. It's out there change.org. It's going to be out there and uh, we're just keeping it out there. So the Innocence Project of Florida put out a petition to have his case transferred to a conviction integrity unit. And I mean, seems like the least they could do. There's a lot of podcasts that are very dry and do a great job making sure that we are always centering the victim appropriately. And that's so important. But sometimes explicitly stating the gravity of what we saw and how important it is to give Michelle Schofield a voice and an identity. It's a little, not condescending, but it just, I don't know. It expects too little of the audience. Yeah, and honestly, you know, that's a really great point. And I have to tell you, like, it's a complicated story because if you think about it, here's a man in prison for convicted for murdering his wife. And we start the whole series with him giving his version of what happened before we get to the state's version of, of how this happened. So we yeah. have basically three different versions of Michelle's death. We start out with Leo's version and he, you know, there's parts where he doesn't know what happened. So yeah. you can describe what he's doing around town. If you believe him, it, you, you, he doesn't have any information about that stuff. Then we start with the state's version, where, which is this timeline and all the things that happened. And all oh, the parents are liars. They're in on this murder conspiracy. They, you know, become accessories to murder. They're out. They're not actually out looking for Michelle. They're trying to create a fake 
alibi and like, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then ultimately we get to Jeremy's story and that's a totally different version of that. And so there is the sort of this Rashomon structuring of the narratives, three different versions of Michelle's death. And we're leaving it to listeners to, to decide what they really believe. I think, you know, in answering your question, we took a lot of our lead from Leo and Leo really, you know, after a while, we begin to understand that, you know, he's still mourning his dead wife and yeah. he is in prison because of her death. And there's this really complicated, you know, process that he has to go through. He was the one who was really the most concerned with Michelle's legacy and who Michelle was first. And he was guiding that and, and got ultimately got us reaching out to Michelle's friends, Michelle's brother, all of them spoke to us. Um, and so we really, we didn't really try to force it. We really wanted her to be a real character in it because she is. Yeah. And so we didn't feel like we had to manipulate anything or, or force anything. It was right there for us. Yeah. You think about the the adolescent brain and all that happens after the age of 25 and what happened to him and then to go to prison to reconcile her death, her violent death. And your own incarceration and your innocent, that's a complicated web to navigate. I'm curious uh, how you feel about this being marketed as a true crime podcast. I'm a true crime podcaster, though I, I think I live more in the criminal justice world. That's more of the conversation yeah. I'm interested in. But obviously, it's the vehicle that gets stories like this to an audience. How do you feel about true crime as a genre? Yeah, well, I, I can just tell you, like, I grew up as a young kid into true crime. I was really, me and my mom were really into true crime. So we would talk about this all the time. And I remember growing up, this before your time, but I grew up in New York and there was the Son of Sam story, which was so captivating to me because it encompassed journalism and true crime. And I just remember this moment, like waking up, like did Son of Sam strike again and Mm. finding out that he did and rushing out to get the newspaper and seeing that, you know, Son of Sam had written these letters to the columnist, Jimmy Breslin, and he was talking about motive and what was driving him. And I, there was nothing more exciting to me. And then to figure so many years, decades later, here I am with Jeremy Scott, we're corresponding together and then we're going to meet him. So, you know, to answer your question, I, I have a fondness for true crime. It's a really big part of my life. And early memories of just reading those kind of books before podcasts, reading yeah. books, watching movies. I, I look at it now as like, I like using a crime story as a narrative. And I still do that in my books. Even when I'm doing history, Devil in the Grove is really a crime story. It's about, yes. you know, these crimes. In, in some way, I think you can look at the true crime element as kind of this Trojan horse. You're going to come in with this true crime element, but you're going to get a lot more. You're going to learn about the criminal justice system. In my books, you're going to learn about race in America, the law, how it's changed. And I think that a lot learn about the criminal justice system today that people are really not familiar with, especially that post-conviction relief side of it. I think they're inextricably linked. And I think it's, you know, it's a complicated genre, but it's 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 progressing. It's changing. I think the genre is expanding to include more. And I think the average person knows about things like Brady violations and you know, wrongful convictions because of great podcasts. I want to go back to Kelsey for a minute because I feel like there's two stories happening in the pot. Well, there's a lot of stories happening or a lot of themes, I should say. But like one of them is your and her experience going through this because what turns, you know, you, you kind of halt one project, a book you're working on to take a look at this. It turns into several years and you guys are on the field doing everything together side by side. And she starts off, you know, she's she's obviously very competent and a great researcher and a great 
she's, you know, on the field with you doing a great job, but she's nervous about approaching. Jerry Hill, you're thinking about Jerry the, Hill. the former state attorney, right, the, right? Yeah, the former state attorney. So, you know, throughout the episodes, she's like, I feel like you just feel like I saw just subtle growth in her and just a little more confidence. And and again, she's doing a lot of this for the first time. Yeah. And you could not be with her the day that she actually encounters Jerry Hill. For whatever reason, I can't remember, you weren't there. You had to be somewhere else. And so she's there. And it was this moment where she approaches him respectfully, asks him about the case. He responds and she gently but accurately corrects him because he has some of the facts wrong. And she's so confident in her research and her work that there was like nothing she had ever needed to be nervous about. And it was like, I just thought that was like this amazing secondary arc. It was like the arc of Kelsey. And I just saw her like come into her own and be like, wow, she's killing it right now. Like she just got this moment and it was just so good. And did you feel that and see that as well? Yeah, Rebecca, I can tell you, like I, I had to I had to give a talk in New York that day and it was That's on right. my schedule. There's no way I can miss this, right? Yeah. And so it just happens to be the day. It's like a big snowstorm. She has to go down there on her own and do this interview with, with like, this is one of those unscheduled interviews. So it's like, we don't have permission. They won't right. talk to us. The only way we have it, we know he's going to be there. Maybe we should talk to him in the hallway. It was a lot to expect from her. She'd done, she'd done, done a few interviews on her own, but I knew this was just a tremendous, she's, she's already like a little bit nervous and anxious about this stuff already. And now she's the spotlight is on her. But I have to tell you, like, I mean, my experience with that, just because she sent me the tape like a couple hours afterwards, and I started listening to it and I, my reaction, I wish you could see it. I was just like, oh my God, she did it. Yeah. And I knew, there was one point I knew it. I knew she was going to do it because I knew she'd be nervous when she approached him. But once she started talking about the facts of the case, I, I, I'd been on that side before where she just, nope, that's not how it happened. And corrects it. And so I, I, there was honestly a, a time where I felt sorry for this guy because I said, <laughs> he can't hang with Kelsey on this. He is not going to be able to get away with saying yeah. the usual garbage that, you know, that someone, cause she won't let him. She just nope. will correct him right away. And that's exactly how it happened. And, you know, we did a lot of preparation, but a lot of that preparation that we did for that interview was like, if he goes in this direction, go here, give him a softball answer, you know, a question first, get him started, but then get to this stuff. And you could just feel his like desperation. Like he's thinking, here's this young girl who's, you know, I'll talk to her. What could go wrong here? And she knows the case, you know, better than him, better than me. She's not going to let him off the hook. And, and I just knew like you could hear him start breathing. Was, Isn't it your responsibility to investigate? Now, now, wait a minute, little lady. You know, he did one of those kind of things. And I'm like, oh, don't little lady Kelsey. That's not oh, going to yeah. work for you either. Yeah, he underestimated her and it was beautiful. And honestly, if I would have been there, I don't think I could have done better than that. Is there anything you learned about wrongful convictions that surprised you that maybe my audience and listeners don't know or that we get wrong about wrongful convictions? Well, you know, I think one of the things like because of my background in history, I know about these things from the 1940s and 50s when it's totally different criminal justice. Sure. So I just assume everything is going to be better, not necessarily the case. And I think the way it's been described to me, like if you get arrested and charged with a crime and you go to trial, you're innocent until proven guilty. Once you reach that post-conviction phase, you are now guilty unless proven innocent. Right. So the bar is just totally different now. And, and just there's just all these protections built in in order to preserve finality and preserve the, you know, the verdict of the jury, right? 
it looks like it's Jeremy Scott, right? He confessed to it later on, like that he did this. Everything he said lined up, stuff that he should not have known he knew about. And, and we get to the finality of this. And we, we, we reach out to the um, state attorney's office and the sheriff's office in Osceola County. And they're like, well, we know that Dan Odie is the real killer. The jury just got it wrong, but he's the real murderer. They basically smeared this guy who's been acquitted of murder because it didn't fit their narrative. So they don't respect finality at all. It, right. They respect it when it fits their you know, position that they have a conviction that they can stand by. But if it's an acquittal, they don't agree with. They're happy to smear someone who's been acquitted by a jury of his peers. So I, that, that hypocrisy just really bothers me to no end. I can't believe I forgot to mention that you both low-key solved another murder while, you know, of pursuing course. the story with Leo. Like, that's very much worth mentioning and was just another jaw-dropping moment during the show. Where I'm like, oh, they just, oh, okay, they just solved a murder and absolved this man and upheld his reputation. Before we move on, um, I was trolling your Twitter just to prep for uh, our interview, and I saw a member of law enforcement tweet recently, and his tweet is right here. It says, I've been in law enforcement nearly 30 years, driving a squad car most of that time. There's no telling how many podcasts I've listened to. That being said, Bone Valley is truly one of my favorite experiences to date. Great job, Gilbert King. That has to feel amazing for someone inside law enforcement. Does it feel good or is it complicated? (laughs) I guess I should ask. Yeah, that's a really great way of phrasing. You're asking some really amazing questions that I don't think about very often. So I have to really process them as I'm going, but it does feel good in a way because one of the things I, I, I really wanted to do when I started this podcast was like, I don't want to make it so that every single law enforcement goes, Oh, this is, this is a biased, you know, thing. I want them to look at this like everybody else and to look at that as a human being. And so that's, that's really motivating for me. And I've had that happen. Quite a bit. I've had judges, lawyers, prosecutors get back to me and say, this guy's innocent. I can tell, you know, this story is really, this needs to be known more and, and it's an injustice. I hope something happens, you know, and, and I've had that from a lot from the side that you would normally think that might be a little skeptical about this. You know, it's coming from all different areas, not just regular listeners to listeners to podcasts, people who read books, but it's also happening to you know, people who work in law enforcement or work in, in, you know, the state attorney's offices that come back to me and say, you know, I, I can't go on the record here, but I know what you're doing and you're right. And, wow. and, and so I just feel like that's important. It's important for me. It's important for Leo. It's important for the whole, his whole case to make sure that I do this right and not cut corners, not, you know, take on the sensational elements that sort of favor. I really wanted the whole story. You did not cut corners. <laughs> you and Kelsey are some of the most thorough research and investigators I've heard. And also what's brilliant about not only the work you did, but what you chose to include. And that's something I'd love to talk a little about. There's so many moments that could have been cut that you left in. What guided you in that process of storytelling? You know, I have to say, I don't know anything about podcasts. I know how to tell a story. And I wrote the script before we started production. And I look back at that script going, this thing awful. It's just awful. It would not work. And so what it really came down to is the team that we had at Lava that was just so experienced at this. We were all on the same page. It was one of the most, one of the greatest collaborative efforts I've ever been involved in in my entire life. And so I felt like, you know, Kelsey and I worked on the script. We knew the story really well, but we sort of handed it over to our senior producer, Kara, and and Britt, the sound designer, and, and Rux, the editor, and they really made magic happen. And I'm I'm trying to, I'm not trying to, you know, just blow smoke in, in all these directions. 
I'm telling you, this is exactly what happened. There were moments that I was listening saying, I, with the music and with the edits and the choices that they were making with our sound, like cause things I didn't think would ever work inside, you know, like I'll give you a, a, an example. You know, there's a moment in episode two where we come back from the evidence room <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, we're looking at pictures of Michelle who we've gotten to know her family. We've gotten to know Leo. And now we see her on an autopsy table with all of the wounds exposed. And it's pretty difficult to look at. And, you know, Kelsey never done anything like that before. I have, but, you know, even still for me, it was powerful. And we come back to do a debriefing in the car and she just couldn't talk. She just started crying. And, you know, we kept, we kept the recorders running for everything because we were so unconfident of anything we were doing. We just said, just keep it running. We'll come back later. Always be recording. Be yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and I wasn't sure. And, and they said, look, this is a really powerful moment. It's a really honest moment. It's not something that's manipulated. It's not, it's a real moment and it works. And, and both Kelsey and I were like, well, it was definitely real. That really happened. But is it, is it going beyond journalism? Is it, is it too much manipulation? I didn't really know. And I trusted them and they were right on every single time. And there were moments that I think, you know, there's times where Kelsey's asking me about my feelings and, you know, I'm like of a different generation. So I'm like, what feelings? Let's move on. You know, and those are, but they love those moments. And I, I feel like as long as it satisfied the whole team and they all felt on board, they could convince me that things I wouldn't normally think of uh, yeah. would go. So I really have to do really give credit to the team. They just had such great taste and sound and, and, and content that I just really trusted them. Sorrow's depths are endless in this valley of tears. He's a true artist. I mean, we we obviously learn from the beginning that he's a musician. And the other beautiful part of this podcast is the song, the theme song. Oh, so glad you said that. Again, this goes back to our sound designer, Britt Spangler, who just like figured out a way to incorporate the music in a way that we just gave her a CD of Leo's stuff and Ugh. and just left it to her. And she just, you know, and I, when I listen to that song now, even after she did this, she selected that song. I listened to the lyrics of that song and it takes on a different kind of meaning to me. You know, the, the one who's holding the stars at one point, Leo says in the, in the podcast, he says, you know, Jeremy's the one who's holding the knife. And, and you mm. look at the lyrics actually kind of, you know, it's obviously a spiritual thing about God. You know, I want to know your revelations. I want to know who you are. And there's a, there's part of that song that just makes me think of Jeremy, like, who did this to my wife? You know, like you're the one who has the control here. You're the one who has the truth. It, it just took on a stronger meaning. And I credit that to like a Atlantic creative team. Yeah, it's very, very layered. It's a very beautiful and haunting song. And again, just one of, I, I don't usually remember theme songs of podcasts with the exception of the serial, like do, do, that will never leave us ever. But this right. one's definitely stayed with me. Are you working on a case, a new story? And is it anything you can share yet? Well, I had that book that I had to put aside in order to do Leo's case. That's been yeah. a couple of years now. And I've been working on that again, a little bit, just going back to my research. And, mm -hmm. but I'll just tell you, I, I have really was so fond of working with this team and this collaboration and working on something more immediate that I think all of us want to do it again. We just want to ah. work together again. And so there, I have no ending of cases that are interesting. I get them from people all the time. And most of them are in Florida. 
just because of my connections down there and my conversations. I'm always doing public speaking, always meeting with lawyers, judges. And so I know there's a lot. Florida's the third biggest state. You know, it's like there's a lot going on down there. There's a lot to work with in Florida. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. And there's no ending to that. So I don't really want to so quickly move out of that area because it's really, it's a really fruitful place for me. But I just, I don't know if this sounds crazy to you, but I just, I got the bug of just working with a team. I'm, I'm not done with it. I really enjoyed it so much. I think everything got better because of everyone's contributions. Wow. From Kelsey, from the sound designer, from our senior editor to editor, and even the staff above us. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to just say all these nice things, but we had this team at Lava that was just so trustful and just said, we have people in place. You guys do the work. And I just feel like that, that I want to stay with this team and, and work in that, in that way, because it's been things that were good to start with got so much better because wow. of them. And I realized that collaborative effort was just the reason. Well, I'm thrilled to hear it. And I know anyone who listens to Bone Valley will be too. And Jason Flom was on with Maggie Freeling a couple weeks ago. So I know they just do such good work at Lava for Good and just I'm such a fan. So you are in great company there and and you gave them the best material and then they just kept working with it. I mean, it really, it's like a beautiful thing you presented to them and they just finished it. And it's it's incredible. I can't wait to hear what you guys do next. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, the next, whatever we do next time is not going to take four years. I'm going to be a little faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. Yeah, people won't, <laughs> we'll get antsy. We'll get impatient. Well, before yeah. you go, Gilbert, I do ask all my guests before they leave. We talk a lot about justice on Dialogue and I'd love to know how you define it. Well, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things I'm really conscious of is like this two levels of justice for people who have money and can afford a defense and others who don't. Yeah. I think one of the biggest surprises in, in this entire Bone Valley case that I learned was that, you know, everybody was telling Leo in prison, you need a private attorney. You can't trust your life to these public defenders that they're going to ruin your case. They're overworked, overscheduled. The public defenders in Polk County were so good. They were just experienced. And, and I just grew this great respect for the work that public defenders do. They know the system, they know the judges, they know the law. And yet, you know, you bring in this Better Call Saul guy who's flashy, shoot from his hip. What kind of defense do you think you're going to get there? But that's, that was the thing that I learned is that public defenders, especially in this circuit, are so talented and so good that, you know, it's just Leo says it's the greatest mistake of his life that he pulled the case from the public defender's office. Wow. And so that's one of the things I just learned, having met so many public defenders, how much they care about this and how hard they're willing to work for someone that they believe is wrongfully convicted. That's incredible. They are the unsung heroes, some of them in, in our system for sure. Well, Gilbert, thank you so much for killing the small talk with me today. And please, everybody go listen to Bone Valley. Can't wait to hear what you do next. I hope to meet in person someday. Love to. Rebecca, this was such a great interview, and I really thank you for this really careful, thoughtful questions. It really means a lot. Thanks for killing the small talk. Dialogue is a Yellow Tape Media production edited by Jason Usry and produced and hosted by me, Rebecca Sebastian. Please be sure to subscribe to Dialogue, a true crime conversation, wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on social media. We are at DialoguePod across all platforms. You can also drop me a note or a guest suggestion or sign up for my newsletter at RebeccaSebastian.com. Be sure to join me every Wednesday for a new episode and another killer conversation.